This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. Despite the despair and overwhelm many Jews have been feeling toward escalating levels of anti-Semitism that increasingly resemble 1930s Germany, there has at least been one silver lining, the rise of legal institutions and nonprofits offering free legal services to protect Jewish civil rights. Yes, 100% free. There are a number of Jewish organizations and legal professionals that are increasingly devoting themselves to fighting anti-Semitism in the courts. And today, I'm lucky to have one of the best and brightest with us for the next hour. Sahur Legal Institute is an international legal think tank and advocacy organization that's taking the lead in the legal battle against anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel, including BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israel. Today's Ahur Legal Institute co-founder, Ron Mackle, sits down with us to share how they're building coalitions to fight BDS, biased ethnic studies curriculums, and terrorist-funded nonprofits that are fundraising and operating right here in the U.S. They will also have an action alert regarding how you can get involved by writing your congressional representatives to request that they support specific actions Zahor Legal is presenting. But first, let me introduce our guest. Ron Mackle is the Chief Operating Officer of Zahor Legal Institute. Ron is responsible for project development and outreach and is the head of all non-legal operations for Zahor Legal Institute. Based in Israel, Ron has a high-tech background combined with a strong interest in Israel-oriented organizations, including previously holding key positions at Israel Employ and Leavi, bringing businesses to Israel and employment for immigrants in Israel. And we're so honored to have him with us today. Welcome, Ron. Thanks so much, Laura. So, Ron, you're a San Francisco boy who made Aliyah. Tell our listeners how your own Jewish identity evolved when you were young and how you transitioned from the world of high-tech and entrepreneurship to become a leading researcher and advocate fighting anti-Semitism. Okay, with pleasure, Laura. So my family came from Europe originally. My father was actually born in Germany, and uh, he was lucky enough to get out as a young child in 1938, so very late. Um, my mother's family came uh, a generation before from Eastern Europe in the earliest 20th century. So, I mean, I grew up with uh, a family where we were very aware of problems for Jews in Europe and also thankful for the U.S.'s uh, immigration policies that allowed my, uh, my father and grandparents uh, to be able to get into the U.S., because on both sides of my family, they had relatives in San Francisco, they actually settled there. I grew up in Northern California, not actually San Francisco, about an hour north in the, in the wine country. So there was a lot of greats, not an awful lot of Jews. And in fact, we were generally the only Jewish family in our school. My mother, though, decided that, uh, that it was important to keep a Jewish identity. And so in our school, 
Christmas pageants, for instance, that we had every year. She insisted that uh, there would be a Hanukkah song included in the in the celebrations. So uh, one thing I can say is in our little town, everybody can sing uh, you know, a Hanukkah song and probably still remembers what a dreidel on the menorah is. We, uh, there was no synagogue in our town, but there was a synagogue in the nearby town. And I was kind of, I think, normal at the time that uh, after school, a couple of days a week, I went to Hebrew school, I went to Sunday school, and I did that until uh, I was bar mitzvahed. Um, in terms of Jewish identity, we uh, unfortunately now have to kind of fast forward straight through university until I'm in my 20s. I, I wasn't a very affiliated uh, a Jew during my times of uh, studies in university, nor in the early part of my uh, working career. But what happened, and I think of it as a great fortune nowadays, is that my younger brother decided after university that he was going to uh, go to Israel. And so I went to visit him. Uh, I also went on a program called Volunteers for Israel. It's a program where people can volunteer uh, on an Israeli army base. And, and that was something that besides being fun and interesting, it really, really actually changed my life. And besides, besides generally changing my life, it, it, it actually introduced me to two very important people. One of them is actually uh, the co-founder with me of Zohar Legal Institute called Mark Greenbarfer. We were both living in San Francisco or San Francisco area at the time. Neither, we didn't know each other, but we met on this, uh, on this uh, trip to Israel. And we stayed in touch, and 25 years later, we uh, co-founded this uh, the Zohar Legal Institute. So th- that was one wow. nice person to meet. Yes, it, it really worked out yeah. interesting. And the other nice yeah. person turned out to be a very nice young lady who I met while I was in Israel and ultimately became my wife. No, wonderful. And, uh, yeah, it, it, it really was uh, <laughs> a lot of unexpected things on that uh, trip. Um, especially for someone that at the time wasn't really so close to Judaism, I would say, um, at least not in a day-to-day type of uh, way. Um, that and, really shows how important these programs are, too, you know, and, and why the assault on birthright and these things are so troublesome because these programs that people go on young at a young age, really, they plant seeds for a lifetime. So you're total evidence of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's how it works. And I I think one also thing that's nice to say about uh, this and really what you find in Israel is that my wife happens to be Sephardic. Her family's from Tunisia by way of France. And so, you know, we, this is what happens in Israel. You meet different types of people from all over the world and, um, and you become a, a, a nation, a nation, a Jewish nation, from all over, and it's a wonderful and beautiful thing. And that, and that's actually what happened to me. Um, certainly as a young adult, a teenager, young adult, I would never have guessed in a million years that I was going to leave the U.S. And, and lead my life in Israel. But in fact, that's, that's exactly what happened. And, you know, almost 30 years later, I'm still here. That's uh, great. That's great. Yeah. And this was really, come, being in Israel actually was the way I would say that I was able to come back to my, to my Jewish roots as an adult and form, form, form the Jewish identity that I have now 
And one, also for me, one interesting thing is, you know, I came to Israel, I was volunteer for, for Israel program, kind of playing soldier, but now I have three sons of my own that are actual veterans of IDF combat units. And, and so, you know, we've come, come really here full, full circle. I, 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 I worked for many years in high tech in the U.S. and Israel. Uh, the Israel is so strong in technologies of uh, computing and networking, but also relating to agriculture and environments and biotech and medical. And so to be part of that cutting edge type of environment was, was a real wonderful thing. Um, I had kind of a midlife crisis in, uh, after about 20 years in high tech and those midlife crises play out in different, different ways. For mine, it was to kind of escape from high tech and that's what they ended up doing. I, uh, I uh, was part of a organization, a nonprofit that helped uh, people find work in Israel and bring their business to Israel. And I'm proud to say that I've been now with the Zohar Legal Institute for about the last seven or eight years. Yeah, you're really a perfect fit for everything Israel has to offer and vice versa. Um, so let, let's go a little deeper. Um, what was the reason that you founded Zachor Legal Institute, and and also what do you guys do that's different compared to other law firms law firms that fight anti-Semitism? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, like I said, Mark, my my partner at Zachor Legal Institute, and I we met 25 years before when we were much younger in this program, and we've always stayed in touch. He went his way, and I went mine. He's he's in the U.S. and he's an attorney, and I'm in Israel, um, and we remained in in, in uh, regular type of communication. And once in, in, in the year 2014, about uh, nine years ago now, uh, there was an incident where Israeli uh, ships from the company Zim were being boycotted in the o- o- Oakland port. They were not allowed to un- unload their cargo. And so I was talking with Mark, who happened to be living in California, not far from Oakland at the time. And I asked him if it was actually legal to, for people to be engaging in such a boycott. And Mark has spent the last eight or nine years, basically, as lawyers are wont to do, taking a simple question and giving a complicated answer. But that's basically how we started and what we've been doing. What we try to do is to understand um, what laws are, are, are there in the U.S., state and federal types of laws, and how they apply to these uh, groups that are pushing for boycotts of Israel. When we first started, the public narrative was really dominated by the BDS groups, by the anti-Israel groups. They portrayed themselves as feel-good human rights organizations protecting the Palestinians. Um, When we started our operations, and it wasn't just us, of course, there was plenty of other organizations and activists out there as well, but when we started, what we started to do was push back. We highlighted the BDS groups ties to terrorist organizations. We highlighted the rampant anti-Semitism they engaged in. And, and one thing was certainly true is that these were no warm and fuzzy grassroots groups. These were top-down groups, you know, being directed with, uh, mm-hmm. including with money from the, uh, from the Palestinian Authority and uh, that neighborhood. And these were, these were groups that were, were bent on, uh, on, on trying to, uh, really stop, stop Israel from being the, the, the homeland of the Jewish people. 
their 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 calls for boycotts were were simply discriminatory against Jews and and violated and we found violated existing laws. Um, so this was our initial kind of let's say narrow focus on BDS. But as time went on, we kind of broadened that, and so we're now think of ourselves more as using the law to combat more generally anti-Semitism and the delegitimization of Israel, which of course BDS is one one certainly component of that. And we operate in commercial, governmental, and educational academic type of environments. And what we're doing that's a bit different than most other organizations is that our objective is to set precedents that can then be used by all of the other organizations. We set precedents via uh, publishing scholarly legal articles and also by engaging in activism. In most other Zionist legal organizations, their focus is on litigation. But in order for them to succeed, they need the, to use precedents. They need to, to have legal framework out there that they can use to litigate. And this is where we come in. We, we provide the, the legal articles and other forms of precedent that then are used throughout the uh, pro-Israel world when, when defending Israel in the courts. I think this is so important, setting the infrastructure that other lawyers will use so that they can be successful in their litigation. And I, I really feel even among serious, dedicated activists, a lot of people, do you feel that people tend to underestimate that? I feel resistance with that sometimes with IRA, for example, that what you're doing is really kind of the unsexy but tremendously important legal work that has to be set down first. Do a lot of people not understand how vital that is in your experience? Yes, in fact, most people don't, including sometimes lawyers themselves. I mean, I, I think the way you described it is in fact the exact way I describe it, which is that we're doing the, un, the, the not sexy type of stuff, the really the nuts and bolts types of things. But, um, and we don't get our faces generally on television or in the news because we're oftentimes not in the front of the issues. We're behind the scenes uh, providing, providing information, providing details that, that can be used in order to, to succeed. Um, but uh, we have our friendly organizations and activists that are out there that know what we're doing. We work very well together. We do our part, they do their part, and together it's a, you know, quite a synergetic type of uh, cooperation that's led to quite nice uh, accomplishments and results. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, we're trying to get your face out there a little bit more. <laughs> So, um, Ron, are state anti-BDS laws making a positive difference? And, you know, and the same thing with IRA, are we making a difference? I think we are. I mean, I, I really do. Um, th these laws, the anti-BDS laws, are state laws. And, and what happened was there are federal laws that prohibit boycotts of Israel in certain cases, and they were originally designed to protect U.S. citizens and companies from the Arab League boycott. Unfortunately, these laws have never really been used to go after the BDS groups. The BDS groups have always claimed, look, those laws don't, don't apply to us. We're a nonprofit. We're not a country. And so they simply don't apply. We disagree with that, but until now, the government doesn't seem to, to be so anxious to, to test those theories. And so we kind of put those aside. Uh, the states, though, have, have really stepped up to the plate. Basically, they filled the gap. And about 35 states, and that's a lot. 
35 states have uh, mm-hmm. legislated one form or another of anti-BDS laws. And there's even a number of the 15 remaining that are still considering it. So there's a bunch of states that have anti-BDS laws. These BDS laws are simply examples of well-known types of anti-discrimination laws, the same types of laws against discriminations based upon gender or sexual orientation, disabilities, whatever it might be. Anti-BDS laws are protecting you against discrimination based upon ethnic origin or nationality, essentially protecting against Jews or Israelis. Um, What these anti-BDS laws specify is that if an entity in the state engages in a discriminatory boycott, not a boycott, a discriminatory boycott, the state will either not do business with them or they will divest from them or maybe even both together. So these are what these laws are are doing. Um, These laws do not in any way regulate speech. No one is, you know, a lot of uh, uh, people that oppose these laws say they limit free speech. They do nothing to speech. They don't address speech in any way. No one is restricted from saying anything about Israel based upon these anti-BDS laws. What they're doing, in fact, is they are allowing states to control their economic decisions, including the right to withhold business or divest from companies that are discriminating against Jews. And and, and, and that's that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, what what is the difference between a discriminatory boycott and just a regular boycott? A discriminatory type of boycott. These, this this is something that's essentially defined in uh, in in the state laws. But essentially, what the laws generally do is they're asking people that are doing business with the state: Is are you engaging in any type of discriminatory boycott. They're allowing the person themselves to, to, uh, to uh, decide. Uh, sometimes it says specifically relating to Israel or sometimes not. But I mean, generally, if, um, if somebody is using certain criteria to decide to boycott Israel, but that same, uh, that same criteria might apply to other states, other countries, and they're not boycotting those countries, then you have to question, is this a case of, of discrimination? So, and this, it seems so open-ended, yeah. It, it, it really, these are, these are things that they depend upon context, but, and sometimes when these laws have been challenged, and I'll talk about that in a second, when, they, when these laws are challenged, it really comes down to, is the boycott discriminatory or not? And, uh, and this this is this is one of the challenges of the uh, of, of of implementing and defending the laws themselves is to actually get into those definitions. But one thing that's important it, to understand is that they only are meant to target a discriminatory type of of boycott. And so, in other words, sometimes people are coming uh, coming in opposition to these laws. And essentially, they're saying, you know, this is this is limiting the the right to boycott something that's that's you know affirmed in the Constitution. And in fact, these laws don't do that in any way. They're not uh, relating to a normal type of a boycott. They relate only to boycotts that are considered to be discriminatory, 
and oftentimes relating specifically to Israel. It seems to me that that's exactly the reason why we need the the IRA definition of anti-Semitism. Because, I mean, am I correct? I mean, how can they, how can you determine what's discriminatory or not if you don't have one universal definition of anti-Semitism? It would seem to me they go together. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. In fact, they do. I'll get to the IRA in just a second. But you're you're 100% right, and that uh, that a critical point of this is defining specifically and not in a vague way, what is anti-Semitism? And, and that is exactly what Ira does. Um, just quickly before that, I wanted to talk a little bit about how these uh, anti-BDS laws are, are, are uh, working and the actual successes they've had. Um, first of mm-hmm. all, these laws, these laws have, been, um, have been challenged a number of times by the ACLU and also by an organization called CARE, the Council of American Islamic Relations, um, it's not a surprise that CARE, which is not very friendly to Israel at all, has been challenging these laws. But I was really surprised at the beginning to see that the ACLU was, was, was really targeting these anti-BDS laws because the ACLU has a, a long history of supporting states' uh, rights to create anti-discrimination laws. And they seem to support that in all cases except for when the discrimination is 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 targeting Jews, um, it's to me right. quite shocking and, and very different from the reputation of the ACLU uh, before. We actually created even a report called uh, "Not Your Parents ACLU," which calls out the ACLU for what they're doing and the way that they are uh, considering and associating discrimination against Jews differently than uh, than discrimination in all other ways. It's it's. Uh, it's You'll have to give is, us that link, so. We'll put that on the website if you give us the link. Yeah, with pleasure. With, with pleasure, I will certainly do that, Laura. So, 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 so those, that's one of the main organizations that are that is uh, challenging these laws. They've been challenged in five states now, but we have some good news, and that is, um, there's only one. There are the state law, the state courts, and then there's the appeals courts, and there's the Supreme Court. So when the when a case is challenged, is first decided in the in the state in which it's challenged. So there was a a a case in the state of Arkansas where the ACLU challenged the law. The the state of Arkansas decided that the law was constitutional, that it was perfectly fine. The ACLU then appealed that decision to the to their appeals court, the eighth, eighth court of appeal, within which uh, Arkansas finds itself, the eighth court. And the Eighth Court of Appeals, based upon the merits of the case itself, agreed with the state, the state's decision, meaning that they confirmed, they affirmed that the law was in fact constitutional. Uh, the ACLU then appealed that decision to the Supreme Court, the only other place they had left really to go. And the su- Supreme Court, really in the last, I would say, month or so, it made a decision uh, not to hear the case, which means that. Uh, that the precedent that was set by the Eighth Court of Appeal in, in ruling the law to be constitutional is now precedent in that, uh, in that uh, circuit, and it is well-known and, and certainly taken to, into account across the country. So this was a, a critically important decision, and uh, you know, we, we're, we're now starting to see that these anti-BDS laws are, are being taken more seriously by the courts, and we, we have positive, uh, positive court decisions to back that up. 
So that's the defense. That was the other, a very big deal. Yeah, very big deal. That was exactly. And so, so we'll see what happens <clears> next. I mean, they're, they're, the ACLEU certainly is not going to give up. CARE is certainly not going to give up. So uh, we expect that they will continue to challenge away. But we have high hopes and expectations that uh, that things are now in the direction of uh, the constitutionality of these of these laws, and that things will, will just proceed as 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 they have in the uh, Arkansas case. So that's defense. The other issue that's critically important is enforcement. Uh, you may have heard of a couple of relatively high-profile cases. In, in 2018, Airbnb made an announcement that they were going to boycott Jewish-owned uh, Jewish owned business owners or apartment owners in Judah and Samaria or over the Green Line. Um, they, they made this... I mean, really crazy and straight discriminatory type of uh, law, the rule that they were going to that they were going to boycott only Israel-owned businesses, and you know, of course, there was much pushback from Jewish organizations and activists. Uh, the Airbnb was put on restricted lists of states' uh, anti-BDS laws, and ultimately, they had so much pressure that after about six months, they rescinded that decision. So that was one success. And the second success just recently, um, I'm sure most people have probably heard of this, was that Ben and Jerry's uh, announced that they were going to stop selling their ice cream in all of Judah and Samaria. And all, completely over the green line, they simply didn't want to have their ice cream sold there at all. Um, ben and Jerry's is a private company, or is actually a subsidiary of the huge conglomerate public company, Unilever. And so... When their subsidiary made that decision, uh, Unilever began to get uh, the same type of pressure as Airbnb for allowing their their subsidiary to engage in in uh, discrimination against uh, against the state of Israel. There's uh, over a hundred disputed territories in the world. Why are you boycotting only in Israel? And so on and so forth. And there was a, there was a wide wide number of, of of arguments and odd things that were going on here. Um, they were they were also targeted by a number of uh, states on their anti-BDS laws. Their their stock plummeted, and ultimately, probably it took them more than six months because it was a little bit complicated with their subsidiary. But maybe about a year later, they ultimately found a solution. They sold their business in Israel to the local Israel partner, and they were able then to to have this issue go away. And so what we have seen then and what we can say for sure is that these anti-BDS laws work, not on their own, but together with everything else that's going on, anti-BDS laws were, I would say, instrumental in causing Airbnb and Unilever to, to change their minds. And, and one last thing about Unilever, because this is something that is just kind of problematic generally, is that um, the founders of Ben & Jerry's, uh, interestingly enough, called Ben and Jerry, are both Jewish gentlemen. They don't own the business anymore, but they're they're still out there and around. And they, at the time, publicly supported uh, BDS and applauded the company for taking such a stance. They, when they were asked how come uh, Ben and Jerry's is doing this only in Israel and not in other disputed areas, they looked at each other and didn't have an answer. But anyway. Here we, are, here we see something that we see on campuses and so many different places of Jewish people that are actually supporting uh, BDS and other types of, of mm -hmm. 
actions against Israel, and it's something that's really shameful. I agree. I agree completely. Um, it, the Ben and Jerry's, that was like all anybody talked about for the longest time. And it's I'm great sure, that you yeah. guys are a, a part of this. Um, so can you talk a little bit about Ira? And, and maybe just give a brief, uh, can you include a, a brief explanation for those who might not be familiar in our audience? Okay, of course. So IHRA is actually spelled I-H-R-A. There's an H in there. It stands for the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. And um, they developed a definition of anti-Semitism. And and this definition is something now now states and many other entities are using to specifically define anti-Semitism. Exactly, Laura, like you you were asking about relating to discriminatory types of boycotts. But a million and one other things, too, where it's very important to be able to have a clear and agreed-upon definition of anti-Semitism, and the IRA definition comes in and does that. It, it is simply by far the most widely accepted international definition of anti-Semitism, adopted by governmental agencies, whether they're countries or states or cities. The U.S. Civil Rights Act refers to it. A, a huge number of organizations, including a huge majority of Jewish organizations, have also adopted uh, the IRA definition. Uh, according to the, an organization called Combat Antisemitism Movement, they said in the year 2022, there are more than 1,000 entities that have uh, endorsed IRA, including 30 U.S. states. So this is this is just since it's simply something that is very well accepted in the world nowadays, in the U.S., but really throughout the world. Um, the reason why the specific definition from IRA is so important is because they take into account not just the well-known ages-old hatred of Jews, which is, of course, important, but also the more contemporary type of anti-Semitism, which is anti-Semitism uh, or hatred of Israel as a proxy for Jews. This is something that we, we see very often in social media, on university campuses, and really in a variety of different places. In fact, there's there, generally now anti-Semitism has morphed more into this anti-Israel type of uh, anti-Semitism as opposed to uh, anti-Jewish, although, of course, the anti-Jewish hasn't gone away either. So, so this is the value of IRA, is to have such a well-recognized, well-defined definition that is actually also quite encompassing. It, some, of the, some of the listeners may have heard of Natan Sharansky. He has a definition that he calls the three Ds in defining anti-Semitism, delegitimization, demonization, and double standards. And I think that's a pretty maybe easy way of thinking about the anti-Israel types of anti-Semitism that are in IRA. If you're delegitimizing, if you're demonizing, or if you're engaging in double standards, you are guilty of anti-Semitism as relates to targeting Israel as a, pro- as a proxy for Jews. Um, there are many times you'll hear anti-Israel activists, generally anti-Israel activists, that have, have uh, issues with this IRA definition. So one of, one of the myths or for Yiddish speakers, booba monsters that are out there is something you hear often that says, IRA criminalizes or restricts free speech. And again, exactly like anti-BDS laws, IRA does nothing 
relating to speech. It doesn't restrict speech in any way. What it does is it labels speech. It labels certain speech as anti-Semitic. And anti-Semites just simply don't seem to be like to be labeled as anti-Semites. But that's what it's doing. It's defining it is defining speech. It is not restricting it in any way. There are no penalties, criminal or whatever, in IRA. It's simply a way of defining uh, speech as relates to anti-Semitism. The second main, I would say, uh, issue that, that people have with with uh, the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, they claim that it, it defines criticism of Israel as anti-Semitic. Um, that is, in fact, the opposite of what the definition does. In fact, the, the, the definition specifies specifically that criticism of Israel that's similar to criticism of any other country is not considered anti-Semitism. And so it certainly does not define criticism of Israel as anti-Semitism, even though some criticisms of it, some types of anti-Israel uh, speech is anti-Semitic, but criticism of Israel's policies it, it might not be. I mean, for instance, now it's all over the news in Israel, but it seems like also in the U.S. that many people are are protesting, many Israelis, many Jews even, are, are, are protesting um, the the suggested reforms in, of, that, the, that the Israeli government is uh, is uh, legislating relating to judicial reform. This is a criticism of a particular policy of the Israeli government, and nobody believes that these protests are anti-Semitic. They are how a normal country operates, but there are certain examples given in the, in the IRA definition that, that are considered anti-Semitic, and I'll, I'll read just a few of them for you. Examples of, of, of anti-Semitic, Israel types of statements that are that are considered anti-Semitic include accusing Jews of being more loyal to Israel than their home country, whether it's the United States or France or England or whatever it might be. Denying people the right of self-determination, meaning that if you're saying, and this is an important one, if you're saying that Jews don't have a right to uh, to to their homeland of Israel, if you're denying Zionism, that's a form of of anti-Semitism. Engaging in double standards, meaning that if you are judging Israel based upon one standard, but you're judging other countries in a different way, then that is that can be considered anti-Semitic, depending upon the context. And also holding Jews responsible for the actions of Israel. All these are examples in the IRA working definition, and in my opinion, very reasonable examples of, of anti-Semitism. The, the, the actual definition itself says very specifically the context is critical in understanding whether something is anti-Semitic. This isn't black and white stuff, of course. And so you have to use your brain and understand the context and understand as much as you can the situation. But the IRA working definition, it gives us the ability to understand and, and specify in, in a good way uh, the types of anti-Semitism that are happening nowadays. Now, is the states adopting IRA, is that going to make as big of a difference as these anti-BDS laws? And, and I, I don't know the answer to that yet, because these, these, uh, these states adopting or, or accepting IRA is kind of new. If they, um, if they are endorsing IRA, 
then okay, that's a nice PR thing. They're you know they are in favor of this definition, and that's something wonderful, but doesn't have any legal relevance. However, if they adopt this definition as an integral part of let's say how they specify state hate crimes, meaning that anti-Semitism is a form of of a hate crime which has you know a certain type of criminal penalties above and beyond a different type of crime, let's say. Um, then it can be actually something that will that will have an impact and hopefully serve as a deterrent. It, it's a little bit early to know yet what's really going to happen there. So are you saying there's a difference between adopting and endorsing IRA, just to clarify? Yeah, not, yeah I mean, those, or those words maybe not even aren't the best words because everyone can uh, can understand those words in a different way. But what I would say is that some states... Are, are are basically saying, you know, we uh, we believe that the IRA's definition is a very good definition of of, of uh, anti-Semitism. We support this. Uh, that has no legal relevance. It's simply, I would say, a show of, res- of support in that particular state for the Jewish people, and very welcome. Some states, though, have started to codify the laws to incorporate IRA as one way that they can be used to define whether a crime that occurred was a hate crime. That's something that has teeth. And so we're going to really have to see, wait and see how the states are really going to use these, these laws. Are they, are, they, are they going to incorporate them into how they define hate crimes, or, or is it really something else? Yeah. This is really important, what you're, you're sharing with our audience, and I appreciate that because you know, just to sort of make sure I have this distilled correctly, we have federal laws, but they aren't really enacted uh, or enforced properly, so it comes down to the states. Um, and so on the state level, they can first uh, endorse IRA, which is a sign of respect, which lays down the infrastructure that may become actual legal adoption. I mean, would you say one usually precedes the other, I would imagine, and... Yeah, well, I guess where I'm going with this is that a lot of our, even our own people seem to underestimate IRA, it seems, sometimes. And back to your original point that Zahor Beagle does a lot of that unsexy uh, work that sets precedence in infrastructure, it seems to me that IRA is very similar in that vein. And I, and I think it's, it's great, you know, we're talking about this, we're not lawyers, but... Um, you know, we can maybe break it down for, for average people pre- precisely because we're not. Um, so I, that's one thing that is hard, I think, to for some people to understand why, you know, there's all these different steps. It's like it's not a one-stop uh, solution, and but nothing is. So um, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, basically I agree with what you said, Laura. Um, uh, the IRA is a not a solution. It's a resource. It's a tool um, in the same way that anti-BDS laws are. And depending upon the will of the states to enforce the laws uh, or to use IRA in a, in certain specific ways, they can have more or less of an impact. Um, uh, and, and that's really it. But I mean, I, I would say that at the first step that we have to get to is actually defining IRA correctly and maybe not universally, but as widely as possible. Once that happens, then we have many uh, 
other options that we can take. But in, before that happens, we're always going to get into the situation as well. Is this anti-Semitism or not? And when we're at that stage, it's hard to really produce results. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to move on to ethnic studies. Um, what are your thoughts about all of these ethnic studies courses that are being added to K-12 curriculums nationwide? And um, is there still time to stop the anti-Semitism effects of some of them? Uh, well, we certainly hope so and think so. In other words, the ethnic studies is really a rage in the U.S. nowadays um, in K-12 as well as in universities. Um, for instance, the, in California, the uh, California State University is one of the two public university systems in California. They've, they've adopted a, uh, a requirement for graduation that includes an ethnic studies course. So this is, this is in elementary schools. It's more in junior high and high schools, and it continues on to universities. And we consider this a gigantic problem. Um, and what, what we found is this, that the marketing material for the ethnic studies classes, it sounds real good. There's great worthy benefits trying to help disadvantage or poor performing students or ethnicities um, improve academically and, and lead more productive lives. Who, who wouldn't be in favor of that? They point to study a study that shows that ethnic studies can actually achieve that or improve the situations. Um, and from my perspective, if this was done by highlighting the positive contributions of these ethnic groups and disadvantaged groups, that's great. That's wonderful. That's a very nice thing. But what we have found is that when ethnic studies is actually implemented, it is almost always in, in, uh, implemented using a CRT or critical race theory model. And in, in short, what that basically says is whites are privileged. They oppress minorities. And it's a way of indoctrinating students to hate each other. And, of course, mm-hmm. one subset of these whites are privileged is that Jews, by the way, happen to be these privileged whites. So Jews are not probably the main target in the CRT. Certainly they're not. And they're not the main target probably in ethnic studies. But because of the model that's used, it turns out that these courses until now generally are very, at a minimum, anti-Israel oriented. And it's, it's right to say sometimes that's crossing the line, even oftentimes crossing the line into anti-Semitism. And so this is something that, that, that worries us very, very, very much. I mean, I can give you an example in, in California, because I think this is the probably the most advanced State until now in, in implementing uh, ethnic studies in the, uh, in the high schools. Um, there is a group in, well, there was a committee that was, uh, that was created in order to recommend the curriculum to the, to the governor of California uh, to be passed into law to, as a mandated course requirement in high schools in order for students in, in, in uh, California to graduate. Um, the curriculum in this, cor- in this course that was suggested, that was recommended to the governor, was extremely anti-Israel in nature. And, and according to the IRA definition, it was anti-Semitic many, many times over. It, the Jewish groups and activists were in an uproar. 
and there was a lot of publicity about this, probably two or three years ago, something like that. Um, the, governor, the governor heard these criticisms, and he didn't approve the curriculum. And so what happened was um, that the curriculum was redesigned, presented to the, uh, to the uh, governor, and he ultimately signed off on it. This updated curriculum really had the anti-Israel content essentially erased. And so it was something that most Jewish groups were behind, this new, um, this new curriculum. Um, but what happened was that in the law, there's also kind of a loophole that says that any school district in California has the right, if they want to, not to use the curriculum defined in the law, but to go out and, and to uh, use any, to, to build their own or find another one, whatever it might be. There is a, a group in California called the Liberated Ethnic Studies Group. They're the ones that originally created the anti-Semitic, anti-Israel content. And they are going from school district to school district trying to convince schools in California to use their curriculum rather than the one that the governor approved. Um, and they found some willing school districts in, in Northern California, at least a couple of them. Um, I guess the liberated group is finding that this is difficult to go school by school, so they're now back in the California legislator, legislature, and they're trying to reintroduce once again at a statewide level their ethnic studies program that is profoundly anti-Israel. This is something that we are extremely concerned about. There are 19 states in the last couple of years that have mandated uh, ethnic studies in their, in, in their schools, in the K through 12. I've, looked, I've, I've started to do research on this, and what I've seen is that in a lot of the cases, you can find that when it's mandated, a committee will be set up to, uh, to approve or decide on the content and, and a variety of other things related to this new mandate. Sometimes you see the makeup of the, of the committee, and on the committee, you see no members from Jewish organizations, but you see a member from a group called Supporters for, of Palestine. Just what type of content do you think is going to be in that school district or in that state? Right. And th this is what we're facing here. This is exactly what we're facing here. Mm -hmm. So we are extremely, extremely worried about this. This is indoctrinating students to hate. It is indoctrinating students to hate specifically Israel. Israel and Jews as colonizers in Israel, and Jews as uh, privileged whites that are, you know, taking advantage of uh, of others, and and it's a terrible thing. It's the opposite of what what I would think anyone would want to do to to make uh, you know the state a more harmonious and and unified type of place. Um, so we're working with organizations. We're trying to work with local stakeholders whether they're parents or teachers or students in states that have these problems to push back and to, and to fight these things. Uh, it's not going to be easy. And uh, unfortunately, it seems like there are plenty of school districts. There's plenty of teachers unions that have no problem whatsoever with this liberated groups, anti-Israel content. And the liberated group is branched out from California and they really go to any state that, that, that accepts them. So it is a, a, a big problem coming down the line, that's for sure. And, and when you say you go to the local stakeholders, I mean, is, are you talking entirely grassroots? Or, uh, you know, I mean, are the organizations, you know, the larger organizations, are they doing 
things also to uh, fight the spread of the ethnic studies uh, to all of these curriculums? There are a number of, of, of Jewish organizations that are, you know, obviously very aware of the danger here and are involved in, in one form or another of, um, of, of trying to limit this, this anti-Israel, anti-Semitic content into the uh, school districts. Um, and we're, we're early days here. And so it's, you know, it, it, most of these, even in California, the law was only approved, but it hasn't been funded yet. So we haven't, as far as I know, we haven't seen any state yet which has uh, rolled out ethnic studies at a statewide level anywhere. Um, I believe that this is something that it we're, it we're, we're really going to have to kind of play this by ear as to what is going to be the right approach here. We're, we're, this is something that organizations can be helpful with, for, helpful with in, in pushing back against, but without the grassroots efforts without the people on the ground in the school district fighting and, 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 you know, and standing up for their rights, this is going to be a very, very, very difficult battle to win. It will be. And I mean, that's why the action alerts, like the ones you're, you're giving us that we'll have also on the access page um, are so important because I think they need to hear individual voices. It, it's just, we really need all hands on deck with the way some of these things are, are spreading so fast. We had uh, Tammy Ross and Benjamin from AMCA Initiative on last month talking about this as well, and Naomi Friedman from Stop BDS on Campus. There's a lot going on, but also a lot of great people like yourself uh, fighting this. So, you know, everyone needs to get involved, as you said. Right, 100%. Um, I mean, we know Tammy, Tammy of AMCA well. Uh, the organizations can do very good jobs up to a certain point, but th this is probably not going to be something that the organizations can deal with on their own. And I'm going to be working very hard, and I hope other organizations will, to, I would say, combine our resources and combine our expertise expertise with people on the ground, uh, the local stakeholders, in order to, to, to really have the best chance to, to stop this. Yeah, yeah. It's so important. Well, I understand you're working on another new legal article that's uh, on a separate note relating to holding nonprofits that are fundraising in the U.S. for terrorist organizations so that they can be prosecuted for those activities. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. Um, first of all, it, it seems ludicrous to even ma imagine that you have to have such a conversation. What does it mean to have charities involved in in terror. I mean, that's that's the opposite of what anyone thinks of when they think of a charity. But unfortunately, terrorist organizations know this, and they stop nowhere to uh, to to take advantage of anything that they can in order to to achieve their goals. And one of them is actually creating charities. Charities meaning 501c3 nonprofits in the U.S. and in other countries that are used to uh, support these organizations via fundraising, via providing logistics, whatever it might be. And, 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 and you know, people 
you know, they have their guards down when they hear a charity coming to them. They they just don't think, and rightly so. Who who would imagine thinking when you're talking to a charity that the money's going to end up going to to terrorist organizations? But that's what we're finding nowadays is happening. There's a there's a there's a number of laws obviously against supporting terrorism in the U.S. and, and worldwide, but there there's one in particular that we're kind of interested in called JASTA, which stands for Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. This law is really designed to stop those ancillary types of organizations, those nonprofits that are providing material support to terrorist uh, organizations. But unfortunately, they're simply until now not being enforced in a realistic way. And so they, they, have, they have essentially made these nonprofits until now uh, protected and not, not susceptible to, 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 to the law. And, 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 and we're trying to change that. And, and so what we're doing is really two things. Number one, we're working on a new legal article that is meant to lay out the steps that a, a lawyer could take. To in the civil court in order to bring civil litigation against charities that are supporting terror. So this is one thing to hit them where it hurts, hit them, hit them uh, by 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 getting financial rulings against the uh, the um, uh, organs against the charities. That's that's one thing. The other thing mm-hmm. is that we've been pushing uh, the the federal government to uh, to act against these organizations. There are there are certain charities in the in Israel that Israel designated as uh, as relating to terror organizations, and Israel provided a, a quite a bit of a documentary type type of uh, information information to the U.S. government, and hopefully they will make those same designations. And these are the ways that I that we think that JASTA can be used in order to stop these these organizations from basically fooling people and and raising funds to 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 and to funnel money to to terrorist organizations and I would like to bring up kind of a little case study here let's say a way that that we found success in working with activists in this regard in two activists one John Kovac and Jan Morrow came to us with a letter that uh, they were planning to send to the U.S. government, petitioning them to investigate anti-Israel groups that were inciting violence. Um, it turned out that that was something quite similar to what we had in mind uh, to be doing also, and we thought it might be a good, uh, a good way to, to cooperate. And so what we did was we, we worked with John and Jan to, to finalize the letter, and then we uh, built a coalition of organizations that endorsed the letter and sent it off to the Department of Justice, the FBI, and the anti-Semitism czar, the uh, Ambassador Lipschitz, um, it, petitioning them, requesting from them, even demanding from them that they would uh, investigate groups like the BDS movement or like the Boston Mapping Project that were essentially inciting violence against Jews and Israel. Um, we sent complaints also to the IRS uh, for allowing 501c3 nonprofits to, with tie, that have ties to terror to, to, to make sure that the IRS was aware of this. We also um, uh, 
there was a Washington Examiner article that came out about some of our activities relating to an organization called Alliance for Social Justice. And isn't that a swell-sounding name, Alliance for Social Justice? I mean, you just got to imagine Mm -hmm. an organization like that probably doing really great stuff. But what they happen to be doing is funneling money to organizations like the PLFB and a designated terror organization. And when the information was laid out, the their rights to fundraise using a credit card were, were turned off. And this is a huge victory. It's one small victory in, the, in all, all the, the charities that are out there, but it's one small victory in 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 stopping stopping the money from funneling from going in via these these uh, charities to to nonprofits and so um, I think one key thing here was the work that we as an organization did with local activists to I would say use the strengths that they had and the strengths that we had and then building an, a a group of endorsers and to find that this actually works we 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 can. We can create a, a economy of scale in a way, and and we have a much bigger voice when we come in as a group. Is this going to be successful? Is our letter to the Department of, of Justice and the FBI going to be successful in in starting a investigation? I don't know for sure yet, but I will say that we have the best chance that we've ever ha- had to make it happen, and and I'm optimistic. Um, one, one other final example here, it relates to the Boston Mapping Project. I, I don't know if uh, how aware people are of that, but, th- but this was a uh, anonymous website that came out in the middle of last year of 2022 that mapped a, a huge variety of, of uh, Jewish organizations and also just U.S. organizations um, gave their address and 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 essentially was was what we thought of as almost like a hit list of a way to target all of these uh, these organizations in the Boston area. When it first came out, there was a huge number a huge number of Jewish organizations and activists that publicly protested against this uh, this uh, project against this mapping. Yet the U.S. government did absolutely nothing. They, they said, yes, we're aware of it, and so on and so forth, but they, they really took no action. So we created a report. We released a report just in the last couple of weeks that took a little bit of a different approach. And it turns out that of the 505 targeted entities in this mapping project, more than two-thirds of them had nothing to do with Jew, Jewish, Jewish organizations or with Israel. They were U.S. security institutions. They were police stations, U.S. military bases, homeland security facilities, FBI and Secret Service offices, and weapons manufacturers in the state of Massachusetts. According to the website of this anonymous group, they say, uh, what did they say here, uh, uh, these organizations cause dev- devastation, and we're mapping them so they can be dismantled. That's pretty clear what's going on there. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's just a really amazing thing. Now, it's an um, anonymous. You can't even uh, know we, without the U.S. government uh, investigating, we can't know for sure uh, who's behind this. Um, what, what I can say is two things. Number one is this report was... Um, publicized as part of an article in the uh, 
in Fox News. And the next day, we had many, many, many hits from the FBI. So we know that the organizations that were trying to get visibility uh, for to this project now know about it. Uh, what they'll do, we, we can't say for sure, but it seems to us that if they are being targeted, if, if U.S. infrastructure, security types of, of organizations are being targeted, it, it really kind of smells as if there's some foreign intervention here, that this is not a domestic type of, of, of uh, issue. And according to what we see and what we lay out in the report, one of the most prime, prime, let's say, suspects for this type of thing is the country of Iran. And so we're very hopeful that the U.S. government will now act. They will start to investigate. They will bring the power to bear that they have to investigate who's behind this um, and put a stop to it. And we know that they have the ability to do it, and we hope that they have the will. And what we're trying to do together with all these other organizations, together with all these activists, is to raise the visibility of these requests and get the government to do what, what we think is right. Well, yeah, the mapping project has got to be one of the most chilling things that has come out in, in decades. And it, I don't know what it takes for them to realize that it, 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 it is a hit list, exactly as you said. And I'm glad that you included that in your action alert that we're going to post on the Act Fast page. Um, and also, I, I think it's, it's wonderful how you're building coalitions. I think that's so important all the organizations building coalitions. And um, I, I know Jan Morrow and John Kovac personally, and I think that it's great to see how independent lawyers that you know may not be affiliated with an institute like Zahor Legal or other are still doing things on their own. And you know, even if they don't have the wherewithal as, as an independent lawyer to do something, they can get something started and approach. Uh, people like yourselves, and you guys can then build coalitions out of it. So um, I applaud all of all of what you guys are doing there, and I hope with some more action alert, um, you know, getting getting more of the stakeholders and the people involved, the, the regular folks like our audience, maybe that will help. Um, I have no I have no doubt really? it will help. This is one of those things where just the more the more pressure that's brought to bear, the better chance we have to get to see some action. Yeah, it is, you know what's frustrating to me is that when we have things like the Taylor Force Act and other things on the table that just aren't enforced. I mean, you know, in that case, you're not fighting the law, you're fighting just complacency. And it reminds me of, of something Benjamin Netanyahu said a long time ago about America, that we, we have the means but not the will. And that's one of the most frustrating things is how do you – I ask it rhetorically because I don't think any of us has the great answer. But you know, how do you, how do you motivate people to to do the right thing? It's just, it, it's very frustrating. I guess all you can do is just keep presenting the data. I mean, uh, I don't know any deep philosophical thoughts on that one. <laughs> um, it, it's it, it's 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 one of the biggest challenges that exists for for any type of Jewish activist, whether it has to be an happens to be an individual or someone part of a small organization like ours, or even someone part of a, a very big organization to get, uh, to get action. I mean, it's, it's extremely frustrating when you see laws that are out there that either are, are, are 
purposely or not purposely maybe being interpreted in such a way so that they really don't have any teeth. Um, or like you said, that the, the laws are out there, but there is not the will to enforce them. Um, it, it, it is something that it is difficult to, uh, to, to deal with. It's difficult also, in my opinion, to come to terms with. And more than that, I refuse to come to the terms with it. I don't, I don't uh, agree to accept that. And uh, we continue to push, and not just us, but many good people with goodwill continue to push. And, um, and there are people that out there that are listening. There are people in the government that are friendly and, and are a, in agreement with our positions. We need to find a way to work with them as well to, to, to get results. And it's a challenge. You're right. There is certainly no simple answer. Yeah. Yeah. No, there are on both sides of the aisle, there are people working and that's very heartening. Um, well, I, I saw you have a recent announcement of a legal article you published relating to the colonization in Israel. Um, can you tell our listeners about that? Yes, ma'am. So, right. So we, again, what we're trying to do is we work to set precedents. And one of the ways we do that is via the publication, research and then publica- publication of legal articles. And one of them we talked about now related to the uh, to holding charities responsible for uh, for providing support to terrorist organizations. One of the other areas that we, we've we've until now in, in our seven or eight years of operations have published, I believe, five papers, maybe five or six papers. These, when we talk about a legal article, this is not like a one-page article. This is something that takes months of research. It's many many pages of dense uh, legal, what I call mumbo jumbo that is, is very uh, difficult to, uh, to produce. It requires a lot of research. This is the, this is the uh, work, of course, of my partner, Mark. Um, but our papers have, uh, have, that, we've, that we've published have been referred to by literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, of, of states when they're protecting their laws and, and, and uh, Jewish organizations and activists when they are protect, when they are supporting uh, Israel in the courts, and so this information is super critical, and we continue to try to anticipate what's going to be needed next and to get it out there. So, for the colonization paper, what we're trying to do is 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 we hear like many people here, of course, Jews are colonizers colonizers in Israel messaging. This is something that we, that that's out there all the time. And so what we decided to do was to push back against that by publishing a paper last year in a peer-reviewed legal journal that details the history of colonization of Israel. And this is a very complicated subject. There are all kinds of special, special terms that are used here. I mean, there's so many Marxist terms like settlers and colonists and imperialism, and what do those mean? I mean, if you think it's hard to define anti-Semitism, try to define some of these words, because they're, they're really no easier. Um, uh, Karl Marx, when he used these terms, he mostly was talking about a narrow type of economic situation. Yet here, they're, they're being weaponized in a way, in not economic, but geopolitical types of situations, uh, to support whatever cause they happen to support, including, of course, bashing Israel and Jews. Um, the first thing that I could, would say is that 
Jews are indigenous to Israel as much as any people are indigenous to any land on the globe. And that's simply a, a, a statement of fact. And, and, you know, it doesn't matter if you use the Bible as your resource or other historical texts, whether you rely upon archaeology, whatever it might be, it, 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 it's quite clear that the Jews have been in Israel for a very, very long time, longer than, than other types of people, uh, than other people in Israel, certainly. Um, the only way to try to strip Jews of being indigenous to Israel is if you're going to choose a, not arbitrary, but a specific point of time in history when the Jews have been ethnically cleansed from Israel, and let's say that's going to be our starting point in history. There was no, there was very few Jews here. There was more people of another, uh, another ethnicity. This is when we're going to start counting. And of course, this is what the Palestinians did exactly. They found a time when there weren't uh, Jews in Israel, not because of choice, but because they had been, you know, physically removed, ethnically cleansed, uh, pushed out, uh, as has happened to Jews throughout the ages. And, uh, and chose that as, uh, as, as a starting point in history for, where, for when we, they would define who's indigenous and who's not. One thing that our paper shows is that there have been many conquerors of Israel over the years. And, and that really, in a way, makes sense, because Israel stands on prime real estate. It's at the intersection of three continents, and it is uh, strategically important to hold that land for trade or whatever else, other reasons might uh, might be the objectives of the country. So there's been wars in, in Israel throughout the ages, and, uh, and one of the conquerors also that is, uh, is something that is, is, is a historical, <laughs> historical event that is, I've never heard questions. One of the conquerors happens to be the Muslim Arabs that a little more than a thousand years ago came into Israel from what's now Saudi Arabia, and uh, and took over Israel. They took over many other places, but they came in and colonized uh, Israel at that time. Now, it doesn't matter if this colonization happened a long time ago. It doesn't matter if the Jews uh, had control of that land when the Muslims came. What to me matters is that the Jews controlled that land, and they have been forcibly removed or expelled, and that there are descendants of those people easily recognizable today, Jews. And so I think it is a very relatively simple case to say that Jews are indigenous to Israel. And if you want to talk about colonizers, there's a bunch of them. And it turns out that one of the colonizers of Israel is actually the Muslims and Arabs that are generally the ones, you know, throwing that label around in Israel. Um, so so th this is something that we uh, think is going to be uh, useful when the court cases come and the court cases will come in which this is issue is relevant. There will be a legal paper that's out there now that can be referred to that goes into detail about the uh, issues that are relevant to this. And so in the legal setting, it's important, but we think that it will be important also on university campuses. And for now, we're working with uh, the organization called Camera on Campus to uh, put this message out there uh, via their, uh, their group. And also in the ethnic studies courses, because all of these 
anti-Israel types of, uh, of ethnic studies courses are all saying Jews are colonizers in Israel. They have, uh, they have pushed out the, the indigenous Arabs that were, are there, and Jews are the bad guys. And we now have a paper that can be referred to very clear and concise that explains why that's not true. And we believe when we are get to the point of pushing we're back against these ethnic studies courses, that this paper, this information, together with local uh, stakeholders, will be the combination that we think can be used to, to stop this um, anti-Israel messaging in ethnic studies. This is, this is our hope. This is our expectation. This is why we invested so much time in, in researching and putting out this paper. That's great. And, you know, I think you and Mark uh, Greendorfer both communicate a lot of this stuff very effectively, especially to non-technical and non-legal audiences. So um, I hope you'll give us a copy of that that we can also put on the on the Act Fast page for our audience to look to. I'm sure people will want to read that, and it's definitely very helpful. Of course, with pleasure, Laura. We do have one pre-submitted audience question for you from Avi. Avi asks, how do I know if I should come to you versus other local channels? What is your criteria for helping people pro bono? I think he's talking about, you know, if people are experiencing anti-Semitism. Okay, so, so that's, a, first of all, a wonderful question. And, and I would say the, the easy answer to that is, you don't you don't need to be the one that tries to do the filtering. You can send you can come to us with any type of request. We are a user friendly legal organization, and not all legal organizations are so user friendly. Let's say so. Um, anyone is welcome to turn to us and ask us any type of question they want, and they will always get a reply from us in a nice, fast, and hopefully pleasant way. Um, so th- this is the basic answer, but it, in terms of what what criteria we would use to make a decision, we're a very small organization, so we have to stick very, very closely to our mission. Our mission is to set precedents uh, that can then be used by the wider Zionist organization to defend Israel. And so when John and Jan came to us with their idea, it was actually dovetailed very well with, with one, of the process, one of the concepts that we were working on, one of the precedents that we were trying to push. And, and it, was a perfect, it was a perfect idea at a perfect time, and, and we went with it together with, uh, together with Jan and John. Um, some some, some uh, issues that come to us, as important as they might be, are not really going to be setting precedents. Um, and we're just too small to deal with other types of things. And so I would say that what we, what we will do is we will decide based upon if it is setting a precedent as well as if we have the expertise and the resources to actually uh, realize that precedent. Um, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Um, but we also, in certain cases, if we think that it is important but we don't have the ability to be able to deal with it for, 
for whatever reason, we can sometimes uh, refer people to other organizations as well. So again, I would say don't ever hesitate. It's a, it's a good question, but it's a question that you don't really, it's not really so relevant. If you have a question, ask it. If you have an issue, raise it, and we will respond in the best way we can. Great, great. And um, what do you wish everyone would do right now to help fight anti-Semitism? What we think is that the more pressure that's put on the government to investigate these charities that are providing support to uh, that are providing support to terrorist organizations or to find out who is behind the mapping project of Massachusetts to get we, we've made requests now at the, from the top-down type of level. We've, we've gone to the, to the Department of Justice. We've gone to the FBI. Um, and I think that what could be very helpful if we had a bottom-up approach as well, which means that if there are people that are out there that would be willing to go to their local representatives, raise these issues with them, and explain to them why it's important, and ask them for help in in getting visibility for these with the appropriate people in the government, that would be a great way for people to to take action and really make a difference. Absolutely. And if our listeners go to the Act Fast area, you've written out pretty much a completely well-written letter that they can just copy and paste to uh, for, for our American audience to their elected representatives. And we're including a link that they can click on and just put in their zip code and they immediately can see the emails and all the contact information. So it's very easy, one click, and you've done a great job of making that very easy for them. And we thank you for that. Um, how can people learn more and support your work? Can you just tell them your website? Sure. So it is uh, zahorlegal.org. It's Z-A-C-H-O-R-L-E-G-A-L.org. Wonderful. Wonderful. This is great information. And um, so we have a lightning round now. Um, you ready for that? I'm um, ready. So great, great. My favorite part. So, Ron, why are you proud to be a Jew? Mm, well, in my opinion, the Jewish religion, culture, and traditions have sustained us for a long, long period of time, no matter what the historical situation happened to be, whether it was easier for us or more difficult for us, we've relied upon our either religion or culture or traditions, whatever it might be, to survive and survive in a, in a quite positive way. Uh, the combination of, of individual Jews that have been successful in, in, in any field you can think of, as well as the positive contributions that Israel makes to the world, both of things I think are examples of tikkun olam or changing the world for the better. That's something to be proud of, and that's that's what I'm absolutely proud of as a Jew. Who are your Jewish role models? <laughs> well, well, that's 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 a that's a bit of a tough one for me because I, I kind of just want to think that anyone that's making a contribute a positive contribution to the tribe. There's somebody that is a, is, is a role model. Uh, there's people making maybe bigger contributions and smaller contributions, but, I mean, I, I don't really have, I'm sorry to skirt the question, but I don't really have one or two or three people that I can mention. I think that there is a lot of people out there 
that are engaged in tikkun olam. There's a lot of people out there that are uh, that are pushing to support and protect the Jewish people or the Jewish nation. And every single one of those should be a role model. What concerns you most about the present situation we find ourselves? I think the biggest issue for me is the friction between the different internal groups. Um, And that doesn't matter if it's religious and less religious or politics in U.S. or somewhere else or how they view Israel um, or, or, or the judicial reforms that are going on in Israel, whatever they happen to be. And this is not, this is not related to, to Jews in the U.S. or Jews in Israel or anywhere else. This just seems to be kind of inherent now everywhere, not just the Jews, but uh, my concern mostly is, is Jewish people and the fr- friction between the groups. I mean, all families have disagreements. You know, Jews are well known to have uh, have plenty of disagreements between themselves ourselves. But um, it, it, I get the feeling nowadays that when we try to have discussions, we we've lost the element a lot of times of respect, and the Jew or or we just simply can't listen to the other person. Rather, we're waiting for them to finish talking so we can say what we have to say, and. That's that's to me is a big problem, and and it it, it stops us from from being united, obviously. And I, I don't mean to say that you know speaking together better is going to lead people to unity and everybody's going to agree. That that's not the objective. In the same way that Zohar Legal Institute or no other organization is going to eliminate anti-Semitism, but that's not the issue. The issue is not to get everyone to agree. Uh, on anything, but I think if we can get people to listen to each other with respect and to understand the other position, at a minimum, my experience tells me that we're going to be able to relate to one another better, more positively, and if we're doing that, there's nothing that can stop the Jewish people. Amen to that. I completely agree with everything you just said. So what makes you mad? Well, I don't think my kids are going to listen to this. So I can, I, I'm going to say that I don't get mad too often. I'm not sure how much my kids would fully uh, agree with that. But I, I think I'm usually pretty even keeled, except for the fact when I get up in the middle of the night to watch uh, my San Francisco teams play sports and they lose. I mean, after I make all that effort to get up at the night times when they lose, that really can can be very, very maddening, let's say. So, but, and, you know, I've been in Israel a bunch of years and I'm still following my team. So I, you know, that's, that's in my blood and uh, there's nothing I can do about that. So that, that's the mad part, but I certainly, 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 certainly I can get disappointed. I can get impatient. I would love to see Jewish students on campus stand up for their rights much more than they do nowadays. And frankly, to be as impassionate about, uh, you know, about defending their rights and saying what they have to say um, as those that are against Israel. I would love to see that. I would love to see parents and schools proudly stand up and oppose school districts that are offering, that have anti-Semitism in their ethnic studies. I think that we have rightness on our side. And if we're just cognizant of that, 
and maybe even brave enough to take the first step to sh- to to show that we really are you know behind our beliefs um we we can achieve whatever we're trying to achieve and and it's just a matter of having the will having the actual will like we talked about before the Jews Jewish people need to have the will also to say what they have to say and do what they have to do yeah i think that ties into my next question which is for those who look up to you what do you want them to remember uh, well, I I have my kids in mind when I think of this one too, and uh, I would say just a a person uh, that treated other people with respect and was honest. That if I if I, if I can achieve that, I'm going to be a happy person. Um, and lastly, what's your outlook on the future of the Jewish people? Are you hopeful? Oh, of course I'm hopeful. We've been around for a very very long time and and overcome all kinds of things and. Uh, you know what we're experiencing now is is certainly not worse than what we've experienced that was what we've uh, dealt with before. I mean, again, we have, in my opinion, a great combination of religion, culture, and history, and the foods and jokes aren't so bad either. We have we have plenty going for us. We've been around for a long time. We're not going anywhere. We have a blessedly long memory, but we can use that memory to to learn lessons and to uh, you know, remain flexible and deal with what we have to deal with. So I'm totally hopeful that things will uh, things will be fine. I heard somebody say once that um, everything will be fine at the end. And if if uh, if it's not fine now, it just means that we haven't got to the end. And I kind of like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of I kind of relate to that. I think that things will be fine at the end. And we just need to keep pushing, keep doing what we think was right, and at the end, everything will be just the way we need it to be. Well, Ron Mackel, we want to thank you uh, for being with us today, and thank you and Mark Greendorfer for everything that the Har Legal Institute is doing. We think a lot of people really appreciate it, and we look forward to, to working with you and speaking with you again soon. Well, thank you very much, Laura, again, for having us on. Uh, It was a pleasure to uh, be able to introduce our organization, and we will be happy to stay in touch and, and, and keep talking together. Thanks. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll have Masha Merkalova from Club Z to discuss how Jewish Americans can reclaim Jewish identity through Jewish education initiatives. Until then, bye for now.